Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Power Your Life Radio Show with host and success doc, Joanne White. Author, speaker, certified coach, and energy master, Doc White gets to the heart of what matters most. She features guests and experts to help you consciously create more success, health, and wellness in every area of your life, work, and relationships. They'll share their success stories, wisdom, and know-how to help you shine more light onto your day and into your life. Power your life right now. Here's Joanne White. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us today on Power Your Life, and I'm Dr. Joanne White, and it's always a pleasure to be here. You know, oftentimes we put off things, we say, oh, we'll do it tomorrow, and then tomorrow comes, and we'll say, oh, we'll do it tomorrow, we're too busy, da-da-da-da-da, and what happens is we keep putting things off, and they build up because then there's more stuff that we need to do and they get put off and what happens is that we never seem to be able to catch up with what needs to be done. So we're going to talk to Matthew Dix, who is a best-selling novelist. He's going to talk about that and a nationally recognized storyteller as well as an award-winning elementary school teacher. He's also co-founder an artistic director of Speak Up, a Hartford-based storytelling organization that produces shows throughout New England to help others share their stories. Matthew teaches storytelling, public speaking, and communications to individuals, corporations, universities, religious institutions, community organizations, as well as school districts all over the globe. And he's written 10 books and has won multiple Moth Grand Slam story competitions. Matthew's newest book is called Someday is Today. Welcome, Matthew Dix. Oh, thank you so much. I'm, I was so worried. My phone was doing everything possible to prevent me from speaking to you, but I'm happy to be here. <laughs> well, I'm glad you are, and that's great. So... Let's just get right into it, because firstly, I love the title of your book. Tell our listeners, Matthew, why you chose that title and why it's so important. Well, I work with a lot of people on sort of helping them, you know, make those creative and, you know, life dreams come true. And the word that makes me the craziest is always the word someday, the presumption that there will be a someday. I think the tragedy of so many people's lives is that they have these dreams and they assume that someday they will get to them. And then I think what happens is quite frankly, they run out of some days and uh, you know, all you have to do is talk to hospice nurses and ask them what people talk about in the final days of their lives. And so often people spend that time talking about the regrets, the things they thought they would have time to do. And so some days today is the idea that, we need to take action immediately to make those dreams come true because time is finite and our, you know, the, the amount of time we have to spend on this planet is limited and we have to recognize that every day. You know, that's so important. And we don't know how much time we have and we don't know what will happen that can interfere with, with our dreams and our goals. So I, I love that it is important. Take a look at the now and make that so very, very relevant. Now, 
you do so much with so many people. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into, firstly, writing and all that you do with Speak Up. Sure. You know, everything was sort of unintentional to a certain degree. You know, I always tell people to say yes to every opportunity that presents itself because you just never know when one of those, you know, unexpected opportunities will yield extraordinary results. So, so for me, you know, I've been writing since I was 17, you know, not really thinking I would ever get anywhere with it, but loving it enough to continue doing it. And so, you know, after 17 years of actually writing every day, I finally managed to publish my first novel. In terms of storytelling, though, and sort of what I do today, consulting with companies and, you know, clergy members and attorneys and politicians and everyone, it all started because my friends told me to go to New York City and compete in one of these storytelling competitions that were there. And I, I didn't want to do it. It didn't seem, you know, very entertaining in any way. But, you know, when someone says you should do something, I always think, well, I should probably give it a try. So I went to New York in 2011 with the intention of telling one story on one stage in front of 200, you know, New York City hipsters and then getting out of there. And it turns out I loved standing on that stage. I loved telling the story. I won the competition. Uh, I was at one of those competitions last night. It was my 99th competition in the, for the last 10 years. And from just telling one story on a stage, uh, my wife and I eventually launched our own storytelling organization here in Connecticut. And from there, people started asking me to teach them, you know, first local folks who wanted to tell stories and then local businesses and now I spend my days working with Fortune 100 companies, helping them with their marketing and communication and advertising. But my wife always says, it's the craziest thing in the world that you just spent four hours with the vice president of Amazon, you know, and it all started with like a story that I told about pole vaulting in high school when I was in, in New York City. So you just never know how things are going to turn out, but that, that's the journey. I love it. I think it's wonderful. But you, so it's not just, focused on New England anymore, or has it, is it more expansive? Oh, yeah. it's. Um, I mean, partially because of the pandemic, it suddenly became much easier for me to work with people via, you know, Zoom and things like that. So, I mean, today alone, I met with a company in the United Kingdom very early this morning. I spoke to a client um, on the West Coast early this morning. I'll be speaking to two other West Coast clients later today. So, yeah, it's it's actually kind of rare now that I'm working with New England clients. I tend to work with a lot of technology firms on the West Coast, a lot of attorneys up and down the East Coast, those kinds of things. I think that's great. Now, you have something that you talk about that uh, that's about curiosity, that it kills productivity, which is so different from what's in people's minds because people think, wow, we need to be curious. We need to see what's going on and check everything out. So tell us about that. <laughs> it little, seems well, a little counterintuitive, but it's not. Go ahead. Yeah, it does. Yeah, and I think it is, but I think um, what I tell people is to cultivate strategic in curiosity. So I'm not opposed to being curious about things. But I think what happens is people get curious about the wrong things and spend enormous amounts of time on nonsense. Uh, for example, I know that recently Johnny Depp and his wife or girlfriend had some legal trouble. 
And that's the extent of my knowledge of Johnny Depp and his wife or girlfriend's trouble. I was deliberately and strategically incurious about it. I decided I don't need to be involved in these people's lives. I don't know them. And reading or listening about whatever is happening, you know, the latest thing in the world, the thing everyone seemed to be talking about, it wasn't going to help me in any way. It wasn't going to be the way I wanted to spend my time. And I remember that I was at a party, an anniversary party, and there was sort of like 10 people standing in the kitchen, and I could hear them talking about Johnny Depp and what had ever happened to him in court that day. And I was in the living room wrestling with my nephew and my son on the couch. And I just remember thinking, like, I was making the right choice that day, and they were not. Because whatever happened to Johnny Depp two years from now, no one's going to remember anyway. So it is a meaningless thing that just wastes our time. So I tell people, direct your curiosity at things that will genuinely make you feel better, grow your life, expand your horizons, and then be aggressively incurious about things for which you have no control or things that don't mean anything in the grand scheme of your life. Uh, Direct your attention where you have it. Because I think what people forget is we have only so many resources. We only have so much time and so much bandwidth, and I think they give it away to things that don't deserve it. You know, I certainly agree with you because to look at a lot of what people are focusing on, to me, it has no interest, and it's about, like you said, really focusing on what's important. And the fact that you are having this wonderful connection, playtime with with people that matter in your life, you know, I mean, to me, that's incredible, and that's more important than what they were gossiping about in the other room. So, bravo. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you. What's the spotlight effect? (laughs) Oh, so it is a tragedy, the spotlight effect. It's this this scientific principle, actually, that, that states that people tend to think that others are thinking about them more than they are. Essentially, we think everyone's looking at us and paying attention to us, when in reality, no one really is. Uh, they do experiments on this all the time. They'll, they'll send a college student into a classroom dressed in the most outrageous outfit possible. And they'll put that college student right in the middle of the class for an hour. And when the class is over, they'll ask the kid who was wearing the outrageous outfit, how many people do you think saw you and noticed you and noticed your outfit? And, and they'll say inevitably, like, most of them had to see it. It was so crazy. But then they'll interview the class, and they'll say, how many of you notice what this person was wearing? And almost no one ever does. But we believe that people are focused on us because we are the center of our lives. We're the protagonists in the life we're leading. And so inevitably, we kind of think that we're in the center of other people's lives, too, and we really never are. And because of that, we sort of get stifled. You know, we, we fight for perfection because we worry that people will think we're less than perfect. You know, we, you know, we force ourselves to sort of go out looking perfect because we're worried that if we run into somebody at the grocery store and they see us, they'll think less of us because we're wearing sweatpants instead of jeans or pants, you know, when really no one cares. I was working with an executive recently, and she was sort of stuck on this. She was getting ready to release a newsletter, and every Monday she wanted to release it. And she said, I'm worried. What happens if I don't have one on a Monday? I said, do you really think people are hovering over their email every Monday waiting for your newsletter? If you don't have one one Monday, they won't even notice. They'll just get it the next week, you know? And the way I convinced her of this was I said, the last time you went to a wedding, 
how did you dress? And she told me how she had went, she went up to Nordstrom and she spent like three hours finding the perfect dress and she was really happy with it. And I said, all right, at that wedding, can you remember anything that anyone else was wearing except for the bride and groom? And she couldn't. And I said, do you really think anyone remembers what you wore at the wedding? You know, and she sort of like had a moment of realizing, I guess nobody remembers what I wore either. Now, if you want to spend three hours buying a dress and you feel great about it, I think that's wonderful. But if you're doing it just because you think other people expected of you, the spotlight effect tells you no one cares, no one remembers, and no one probably notices. And when we can accept that, we can kind of move through life with a little more impunity and I think a little more productivity. You know, I think that's so important because I work with clients and oftentimes there's that level of self-consciousness. What's somebody else going to think? What are they going to look at? And and it holds people back, Matthew, from just being themselves and and, and being out there and, and being courageous, and it really interferes with their lives. And like you said, nobody's paying attention. I say that all the time. They're not. They're not. They're really, they're focusing more on, themselves and that's that's yeah, the trick but i love true. i love called oh, the spotlight effect that that's new for me that terminology so we all need hope tell us about hope and and your why you believe it's so important and how we actually can sustain that in our lives especially when there's so much tumultuous stuff going on in our world and in our and, and in our daily living well I, I guess two things in terms of hope I think it's important because I think no one really can take a positive step forward unless unless they believe that something good will come of it I think when we lose hope it's sort of the belief that no matter what I do nothing will be any better tomorrow you know and there was a moment in my life when I uh, was at my lowest you know homeless and facing a trial for a crime I did not commit and sort of thinking that this was it for me, like my life was never going to get any better. And I remember getting pretty close to hopelessness, that sort of sense of giving up because nothing can get better. And I think it's the worst thing that can happen to a person. I think we cultivate hope and make sure that we cultivate it on a daily basis by both acknowledging that the small steps that we take can yield results that rather than believing in big gulps or magic pills, just doing one small thing to get you closer to your goal, the smallest of things still gets you closer to that goal. And when we start to credit ourselves for those small steps, I think we cultivate hope. I think what happens is we're just really hard on ourselves. And so if we haven't taken a big step or a giant step on a particular day or, or we feel stuck in the mud, we think it's our fault when the truth is, Success takes time, that achieving goals is a, oftentimes a lifelong journey, and we can't be so hard on ourselves. We have to acknowledge that we did something today, that we, we made our bed, and we fed our kids. And, you know, if your goal is simply to have a vegetable garden in the backyard, and you've been dreaming about it for years, just buying a pack of seeds today will get you closer. And that's the way that you can cultivate hope, that every day I can take a small step forward and I'll eventually get somewhere. I think the other thing that we really have to think about in today's world, I've been dealing with this a lot with people. I keep reminding people that as difficult as our world seems to be today, and it is, I like to think that 
1971, my father was drafted into Vietnam, a war based upon an incident that took place in the Gulf of Tonkin that was probably falsified. That same you know, decade, stagnation was ruining our economy. The president of the United States was about to be impeached for corruption, and National Guardsmen were shooting college students on campuses. If I asked my father, who is still alive today, if I said, Dad, would you like to stay here today or go back to 1971, I think he's going to say today is a better day. And I think when we take that historical perspective, we can feel more hope about the world. I think that every generation tends to think that this is the bad time. But I think that the Great Depression, the Civil War, World War II, there's been other times in this world when things seemed bleak, and, and we've managed to get through those too. So keeping that historical perspective, I think, is really important as well. I totally agree with that. I also think it's important, like, I mean, you went through some very difficult times in your life, and many people do that and, and go through difficult times, and and I have too. And I think that what helped me get out of that was a glimmer of hope that, that uh, you know, and inner guidance that something's going to be better, that, that and and that was a calming effect to help me move forward. So I, I think that's so important that we never, ever lose a sense of help, hope. And I love the fact that we can take those steps, even if it's a small step in our life that can lead us towards our goal. But those you've got to start with one step. You've got to start somewhere, right? And so that yeah, and can... Give and give yourself credit for it, too. People never want to give themselves credit for, for making steps forward. Because, like you said earlier, they think, oh, my God, I didn't, do the, I didn't get to the goal. Well, yeah, you took two steps or one step to move so that you're moving towards that goal. And we have to be, we also have to be less hard on ourselves. We are very hard on ourselves. And that's yeah, important. we are, yeah. So tell us a little bit, because um, now I'm more fascinated about your, your story. Tell us a little bit about your story, your life that, helped, that, that shaped you into the beautiful author that you are and helping other people in so many ways. Well, you know, I, I had sort of a really, you know, I, I didn't have the easiest childhood. I was kicked out of my home after high school, so I didn't have an opportunity to go to college right away. Uh, you know, and eventually I, I was arrested and tried for a crime I didn't commit. I was, I was eventually found not guilty. But uh, during that time, I became homeless for a while. And eventually, when I got back on my feet, uh, thanks to the help of, honestly, some wonderful people who took me off the street and, you know, put me in their home, I started working for a McDonald's restaurant in Brockton, Massachusetts, overnight to um, pay legal fees, honestly and to, you know, get myself out of the trouble I was in. And I was working in that restaurant one night when I heard glass break, and um, the store was closed, and I was counting money at the safe. And when I heard the glass break, I knew I was in trouble. The police had come the week before and warned me that this team of three men were robbing restaurants, and two people had already been killed in those robberies. So, you know, when I heard the glass break, I knew it was not going to be good, and they, they eventually got into the office with me, and they started emptying the safe, and part of the safe had a compartment that could only be opened by the owner of the restaurant. And there was a sign on it that, that said that, uh, but the men didn't believe it. And they were sure I was able to open that bottom box and get the money out. 
and um, the way, so they beat me and I still didn't open it because I couldn't. And eventually they put me on the ground and they put a gun to my head and uh, they told me they would kill me. Um, And they began counting back from three. And I was absolutely certain it was the last moment of my life. And the astounding thing about that moment for me is that I never felt afraid or angry or even sad. The only feeling I had in those final seconds was regret just regret over what I had failed to do in my life. And obviously they, they didn't tell me, they pulled the trigger on an empty gun. And, um, <laughs> you know, it's a situation I would never wish on anybody. You know, it was 15 years of PTSD before my wife dragged me to a therapist. Um, but it made me understand what so many people feel at the end of their lives. Like hospice workers will tell you that at the end of people's lives, what they talk about most is regret, the things they haven't done. And so ever since that night in that McDonald's, I have sort of pivoted my life to ensuring that when my final day does come, I will not be thinking about the things I haven't done, but instead enjoying the thoughts of the things I've accomplished in the life that I have. An amazing story and amazing that you, you know, not only did you survive all of that, but you're here to help people and write all these great books. And what can you tell people? Because many people, you know, they're going to hear what we're talking about, but they are still stuck. They don't, they don't look at some days today. They, they are overwhelmed with probably little things in their lives. And those dreams, those things that they really are aspiring to somehow go by the wayside or get put off for tomorrow, what do you tell people? What can actually motivate them to make that shift to act on today? Uh, well, one of the, the first thing I think people have to do is sort of shift their thinking. You know, I think that most of us have more time in our lives than we could imagine, and so many of the minutes we have are sort of dithered away with um, wasteful indecision. And, you know, I don't think people make bad decisions as often as they make no decision about how to spend their time. You know, they just allow life to sort of push them in the direction that life is going to push them rather than determining their own path. So, you know, the philosophy I've lived with, honestly, since that night in that McDonald's was, when I'm faced with a decision, how I'm going to spend my time, what choice am I going to make, what dream am I going to chase, I always look forward to what I think of as the 100-year-old version of me, the one sort of lying on his deathbed looking back on his life, because that Mm -hmm. version of me always makes good decisions. That version of me says, don't spend your days watching television. Don't spend your days scrolling through social media. You know, when your son says, hey, dad, do you want to go play outside and it's 113 degrees? I still go outside and play with him because the 100-year-old version of me says, that kid is not going to be asking you to play with him very long. He's going to grow up on you and you're going to regret every time you said no to him. So never say no to him. So it's that idea that we have to live our lives not for what we want in this moment or for what's causing us to be afraid in this moment, but for what we want our lives to be over the long term. So that kind of decision-making will be a good start. And then just acknowledging that every dream is a horizon point, you know, it's far away, and that we have to start building some momentum by making some decisions. And, um, 
you know, making positive steps forward as small as they might be. Every great thing that we want to accomplish in life takes a thousand tiny steps. And so if you make four of them today, that's tremendous. And that will get you moving forward. People are stuck. They're always, they're, they just get stuck with, you know, the spotlight effect and perfectionism and self-doubt. And all of that can be removed if you just take a positive step forward. You know, I totally agree with that. When I was going for my Ph.D., I was overwhelmed, and I made a list. I had about 140 steps, and I thought, there's no way. But just looking at those first steps and and being able to accomplish them and then be able to cross them off the list and then go to the next one and the next one really made a difference. But, But initially, it can be overwhelming, unless we start moving forward, like you say, taking those little steps and rewarding ourselves. It doesn't have to be spending a lot of money or eating a lot of rich food or whatever. It's just, you know, give yourself a pat on the back or whatever it is, because that that really matters. That's so important. Let's talk more about your book. I love it, by the way. And there's a great chapter in it. Well, they're all great chapters, but there's one that's most fascinating, and, and I love the way you call it, the eagle and the mouse. Describe that to our listeners. Let's not get, give everything away because I want everybody to buy it, but, but tell us more about that chapter, Matthew. Sure. You know, it came from my wife's frustration with me. You know, we were married, and she's a teacher, and I'm a teacher. We were doing report cards one night together. And in the span of a little more than an hour, I had finished all my report cards while listening to an audio book and playing poker online. And meanwhile, while I did all that, she had finished one report card. And so she just was so frustrated with me that the next day she went to our boss and complained about me. You know, his name oh, was wow. Plato. And she said, yeah, she said, Plato, I don't know what I'm going to do with Matt. He did all his report cards in an hour, and I did one report card in an hour. And, like, he made $400 playing poker and listened to a book at the same time. How can I live with this? And, you know, Plato explained to her that on, you know, one of those Native American spirit wheels, there's different animals at each position. And opposites of each other are the eagle and the mouse. And essentially, he said, Matt is an eagle and you are a mouse. So the eagle is the person who sees the big picture and understands what is important and what can be ignored. So when it comes to report cards, I know that all parents really want is to hear that I love their kid, which I do, that I understand their kid in a way that you can only know a kid if you're paying attention, and that I believe they're capable of doing even more. And if I say those three things to a parent on a report card, everything else is kind of irrelevant. And so I'm able to accomplish my report cards quickly because I don't spend an enormous amount of time digging into data that nobody cares about. Whereas my wife is a mouse. So my wife is focused on the details of things, which is not necessarily a bad thing. You know, my house is beautifully decorated because my wife has attention to detail. She bakes wonderful foods, you know, which requires attention to detail. But the problem is so many times in people's lives, they stay in the weeds, they stay in the grass as a mouse worried about details when ultimately the details sometimes don't matter. And it doesn't mean that I'm always an eagle because I write novels. Obviously, when I'm writing a novel, I'm very much a mouse. I am focused on the details. I am choosing words and sentences carefully. But especially with creative people, they sort of rarely are able to fly above the fray and figure out which 
things I'm doing are irrelevant, yielding no results, don't matter in any way. And so what happens is they tend to just get swarmed and overwhelmed with details that don't matter and they don't accomplish as much. So we have to be willing to sometimes be the mouse when that is important, but sometimes fly above and say, this thing that I'm doing, does it actually matter? Is it really helping me in any way? And when it's not, we have to discard it. And that vision is really important, I think, for people. I love it. I think it's great. Now, when I'm writing, do not disturb me. <laughs> do, do, do not <laughs> interfere with the creative flow, please. So, And I've had a little sometimes heated moments with people because, don't you want to eat? Well, yeah, but not yet. I'm in the <laughs> middle of something. I know you understand this. <laughs> it's important. Yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> so people tend to procrastinate. That's like that whole thing. Someday is tomorrow. Someday, someday, some, and it never comes here. What What do you tell people? How can we have people who just prolong and don't really? activate their goals and their dreams and keep putting them off, how can you help them move forward? What, what can convince them to shift, if anything? I, I think one of the mistakes we make about procrastination is we assume it's laziness, and I think it rarely is. I think people procrastinate because they are afraid, uncertain, or filled with self-doubt. And when, and I, when people can acknowledge that, because I think they they also think they're procrastinating because they're lazy or because they don't, you know, they didn't use their time wisely. But I think when they can acknowledge that I'm actually not doing this thing because it makes me nervous or I'm afraid of failing or I'm not sure if I can do it. When we, when we acknowledge those genuine reasons for procrastination, I think we can get a lot closer to stop doing it. I, I think it's easy to tell yourself, you know, grow up. Put on your big boy pants. Don't be so afraid, you know. But if you don't understand that that's why you're procrastinating, you sort of can't engage in that positive self-talk. So when we see even our own children procrastinating and we think, well, they just want to play video games and not do their homework, while that may sometimes be the case, I think much more likely the case is that math homework they have is hard and they're afraid to make mistakes. And they're afraid that if they can't figure out the problem, they're going to feel terrible about themselves as a human being. And so when we figure out the, the reasons why we procrastinate, then we can actually start addressing them and, and becoming less of a procrastinator as a result. Beautiful. You know, that's so very important because people have to really be able to examine why they're doing or not doing something. And you're right, it's oftentimes, even in my own life, it's oftentimes about a little reluctance because it may not turn out right or, or that fear, and that can hold us back unless we shift it, and but first recognize it and then shift it and then be able to see it in a different way, which is wonderful. So tell us a little bit more about why this book is so important and what you want readers to get from the book and, and from what you do, Matthew. Well, you know, I think that the tragedy of people's lives so often is that most people live lives of least resistance. I think that many times 
the decisions they make are dictated by others, by the world, by society, you know, by norms and expectations. And I think what happens when people do that is they land in places that kind of don't make any sense to them. You know, so, you know, my favorite question to ask someone is not what do you do for a living, but how did you end up doing the thing that you do for a living? Because those stories are often really strange. People often don't have a story where they say, well, I wanted to be this, so I worked at it and I became this. It's often like uh, my dad was in the business and I needed a job, so I went into business with him. Or, you know, my sister had, had gotten a job at that company and she, she got a door open for me. But oftentimes when I drill down and figure out what they actually want to do, they're often not doing the thing they had always dreamed of doing. And I just think that I get extremely frustrated. It's actually a conversation I have with my therapist all the time about how frustrated I get with other people who are not able to take action on their own behalf. But I think that is the truth. I think most people just sort of flow through life and end up at the end wondering you know, how they ended up where they did and why they didn't achieve the goals they wanted to achieve. So I think my book is important because I just want everyone at the end of the day to feel good about the day they live, about the week, the month, and the life they live. And I don't think that happens often enough in this world. And it makes me crazy because I think that everyone can do it. I think that I believe in the capacity of all people. And I, I really believe that with a little bit, of effort and a little better decision-making that people can really end up in places that they want to end up in. And that's what I want for everyone. You know, I think that's beautiful and, and, and it's so very important because I too believe that we all have some wonderful capacity and gifts, but we need to be able to access them and live them and be able to share them in so many different ways. Now, many people are, are stymied because of the messages that they get, whether it's, it's from family or friends or, or people that are teachers or whatever, and that actually can stop them from moving forward. How do you... What do you tell people? How do you address that with people, Matthew, who feel, well, I be they believe what they're told, I guess, is, is what's going on? Yeah, you have to recognize when someone is not helpful to you in your life. And I think that it happens more often than you're willing to acknowledge. I think there's a lot of negativity in people's lives. And that can really be... A difficult thing. I think it can it can really drag us down. Um, I think we have to take action when someone is not making our lives better, uh, or at least <laughs> assuming a neutral stance. You know, would be the would be the lowest bar. And so, if someone is not, um, you know, making your life what you want it to be, I think you have to mitigate their negativity. I think you have to, you know, in some cases, eliminate it entirely. My favorite way to you know, get rid of negativity in your life is to get rid of the negative person. Now, that's not always possible. If it's your sister, that's going to be a lot harder. You kind of can't get rid of your sister, I guess. But or a lot your of times, parents. you know, there's, or your parents, right. Um, but, you know, sometimes you can. And I think people oddly, you know, they'll tell me, well, that'll be a difficult conversation to have with that person. And I say, well, you can have a 15-minute difficult conversation or you can continue to live for the next 15 years with this negative person. Um, and, 
you know, people oddly choose the 15 years because they don't want to have that difficult conversation. So I think when you can eliminate a person, you know, I think it's, it's something you should at least think about. And that can be as simple as I used to play golf with a person who I did not enjoy playing golf with. He was angry on the golf course and never made any of the rounds fun. So what I did was I just strategically began inviting him less often until the point that I'd asked him so infrequently that when I stopped asking him to play golf, he had sort of already kind of drifted away, and that was the end of it, and I didn't have to deal with it anymore. Uh, you know, so it doesn't have to be sort of like cut it off at the head, but, you know, I do think that you can get rid of those people. When you can't, you know, my favorite choice is to find some empathy. I think the problem with negativity is oftentimes, even if it's our parents and they're sort of being negative, we assume that the negativity is directed at us and meant to hurt us. And I think so often negative people are not intending to hurt us, even though they may be. It's the result of something going on in their life. So I have like a very negative colleague, for example, who complains a lot and sort of makes everyone around this person um, not happy. And what I said to myself finally one day, because I can't eliminate a colleague from my life, you know, I'm not the boss and I'm not going to fire this person, is I came to terms with the fact that this person is in a terrible marriage. This person is very unhappy with the, their spouse and with their lifestyle outside of work. And what's happening is this person is just bringing that unhappiness to work. So although this person continues to make my life difficult on a daily basis, I take it a lot less personally now because I acknowledge that it's not meant to hurt me. It's uncontrolled negativity that is swamping my life at times, but not for any purpose on, on this person's behalf. So when we can kind of find the source of the negativity, it doesn't eliminate it, but it makes it a lot less sharp. It stings us, I think, a lot less. So when you can find empathy and a reason behind it, you don't have to like, you don't even have to forgive them, but you can at least um, you can at least understand them. Does that make sense? Yeah, when you understand them, you can have a little bit more compassion and not take it so personally. It's not about you. And sometimes when you actually gently confront those people, they may because they're going through their own suffering. They may not even be aware of what they're putting out there or what's being directed to you because it may not be intentional so that's important and if not and if you have to you you know even with family it may be important to create boundaries so that you feel okay with that if nobody is willing to recognize that they're hurting you in some way and maybe that it is intentional and that's important so we are getting at it but I could have a conversation with you forever, Matthew Dick. So tell our listeners how they can purchase. You have ten books, how they can purchase as many as they want, but also focus on the newest book some days today and how they can reach you and get a hold of you. Sure. Well, my books are, you know, available wherever you get books. So, you know, all of the online resources and probably in your local independent stores you'll find my books too. Uh, you can just go to MatthewDix.com, you know, myname.com, and you can find um, links to all of those things and, you know, access to our podcast and all of the other work that I'm doing there as well. So it's very easy. Just go to my website and start poking around and you'll find everything that you need. Beautiful. And what's your last message to our listeners? 
I think I just like to let or remind people that although we spend enormous amounts of time thinking about our spouses and partners and children and parents and neighbors and clients and uh, customers, I think it's really important that people genuinely carve time out of every day to just think about themselves, to sit down and say to yourself, who am I? How did I get here? Where am I going? Am I happy with the place I'm at now? What changes do I need to make? I, I don't think we spend enough time thinking about ourselves. I think storytellers like me, we are self-centered in a positive way, meaning we afford ourselves some time to think about ourselves and we're deeply curious about our lives in a search to find more stories to tell. I think that that would be a great thing for everyone to do, to just get a little curious about who you are and how you landed here. I think you'll probably make better decisions moving forward once you understand yourself better. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Matthew Dix, and have a wonderful day, and thanks for being here. Thank you for the opportunity. Same to you. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. So think about what Matthew Dix said, because it is important to, it's not selfish to spend some time focusing on you and figuring out what's important and not always putting that off. And that whole someday is today is really very meaningful. It doesn't mean that you have to do everything all at once. Matthew talked about those steps, and I believe in taking those steps because that this helped me in my life and my clients. So think about that today. The name of the show is called Power Your Life for a Reason. What few steps, not a whole lot if you can't because we have busy life, but what few steps can you take today that's giving your life more meaning, that's putting it you forward into one of the dreams or goals that you are looking for. Think about that and take powerful control of your life and you because you're worth it. Have a beautiful day. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to the Power Your Life radio show with host and author, Dr. Joanne White. Listen often and spread the word about the upbeat show to enrich you and grow your life in the direction you desire. Listen again and again and visit DocWhite.org for more information and find out how Dr. Joanne can benefit you. Thank you for sharing your day with us and stay tuned for more exciting guests and events to come.